Hey, this is Kat Kahn from Knoxville, Tennessee. And Tanya Rice from Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are grateful you've joined us. And we cannot wait to share with you the musings of a couple of yogis. We hope you learn, laugh, and enjoy. And we hope you will share with us any of your comments or questions. Without further ado, this is Two Pittas on a Pod. Hey there, Tanya. Hi, Kat. How are you? I'm fabulous. I am just fabulous. What makes you fabulous? You know, I have been so productive today that it's a little scary. I mean, it's been just like a little whirlwind. Gotten, I've gotten my little workout in. I've had potential client I've talked to for my health coaching business. I've been doing yoga stuff. I've been working on our Ireland trip. I've run errands that I had to do during lunchtime, and it's just been busy, 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 busy. You are crazy busy. Yeah, but you know, it's good stuff. I like it when I feel like I have achieved (laughs) by this time in the day. How about you? (laughs) I agree. Productivity has been pretty high in my whatever of late, but yeah, I'm doing good. (laughs) Well, what are we talking about this morning? Or today? I guess it's not morning. Uh, Well, yeah, but when they listen, it will be morning. Yeah, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Today, we're talking about the language of yoga, and I thought I was going to go one way with it, and then the more I got into it, the more I was like, oh, I'm totally going to go a different way with it. And so I kind of have like like major concepts, and I thought, oh, gosh, it might be tricky to fill a, a an episode, but now I feel like, oh gosh, if Tiny is talking too much, <laughs> it might be another 18 part series. Well, you know, this will be fun for our readers, our listeners to see how we go because we don't get together ahead of time and plan what we're talking about. So for me, the language of yoga, I'm talking about you as an instructor, how you speak to your people. So it'll be interesting to see what you do with that topic. (laughs) So (laughs) I took it from a standpoint of, I mean, I did also go there too, but I took it from a standpoint first of like where the language comes from and what's the history behind the Sanskrit language and what's our, how comfortable are we using it in class and how often do we use it and, Mm -hmm. you know, how to build that authenticity and the likes. And so then I also took it down the path of, speaking to the person on the mat with their language because Mm -hmm. just like all things we also need to meet the person on their mat where they're at and so Mm -hmm. some of that is also specific to making it understandable to them and then Mm -hmm. I went down the path like I teach my teacher training in that direct language so you've heard a little bit of that lecture taking 300 hour and then yes so I, I think we just went all over. Yeah. It, it will be interesting. <laughs> I'm I'm excited. So well, why don't you tell us about the history of the language first? Sure, sure. So we're gonna start with Sanskrit. Like, right? That's the word yoga is actually a Sanskrit word, right? We know this from you know all of our yoga teacher trainings, from all the books we read. The word yoga is literally like two parts. It's the yuga in terms of union of body, mind, and spirit. And now in modern times, you hear people say it's the union of all the things like, right, and they just put in whatever words they want, right? It could be your mental capacity, your emotional capacity, your spiritual relationship, like it's just that full body connection 
whatever you want to piece into it. Person could even be technical and say yoga is the balancing of pitta, vata, and kapha in your body, right? I love like that. I mean, you literally could use it to describe any combination of perfect union in your body. You could mm -hmm. use it, you know, to say it's trying to balance all the values in the body or whatever, right? But we know that it's an all-encompassing conglomeration of what makes you, you, and what makes me, me. And everybody in the Western world hears the term yoga and they automatically visualize a purple Gaian mat with a perfect little yoga body and this cute little spandex and that's yoga, but that's not really what yoga is. It's really such a very small part of what yoga actually is, right? It's, it's a life philosophy. It's a way of life. Mm -hmm. Sanskrit, though, as the ancient language comes out of Eastern India, it's basically known out of the Hindu scripts. It's a language like all languages. It has many dialects, just like when you're in the U.S., you can go north, south, east, and west, and everybody's got a different accent. They shorten the words differently. They use, they add letters wherever they want. Like that's, that's the same thing, which is why so many times people, when they see Sanskrit, they're like, ah, there's H's here, but there's no H's there. And how do you know where the H's go? And you really don't because it's kind of based out of dialects, right? And so you kind of just have to be super forgiving when you see words and see H's. Sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. It doesn't, they're, they're a silent letter anyways. So don't get hung up on the H's. But then it comes down to, do you use it when you teach? How often do you use your Sanskrit in your classroom? Not real often. Just a few poses I do because it, it it seems to intimidate people. So I use English words for most everything. I mean, I'll say Tadasana, I'll say Malasana, I'll say a few and sprinkle them in just to, to get people used to hearing it. But I have found that, especially where, where I am, it's just very off-putting. Now, if I used it all the time regularly, people would get used to that. But it's a little more inviting for our clientele to use English more. Or convince them that you're going to go on a 30-day Sanskrit binge and teach them all what they are. Yeah. <laughs> then they probably wouldn't come to class. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. And so then it kind of goes back to, like, your familiarity with the language. Like you say, it's intimidating for people. It's, it's one thing for teachers to come to yoga teacher training to learn yoga. It's another thing for them to realize, oh, wow, there's a natural me, there's philosophy, there's history, there's a whole nother language I have to learn, like then mm -hmm. they get all freaked out, right? But there is a lot of root intelligence to it. And if you sit down with it long enough, play with maybe some flashcards, you start to see so many similarities that you then are like, oh, okay, this makes complete sense. And it isn't as intimidating as you think it is, right? But like all things, you have to practice it to get comfortable using it because you can't just assume that, you know, if you dabble a few words in here and there, you're ever going to learn the language. I'm learning that full-heartedly in my Ayurveda class, the amount of Sanskrit words and, and the amount of flashcards I'm making and stuff, just so that when I hear them say the word, I get what it is because a lot of times they slip into the Sanskrit and then I get lost because they don't give the English interpretation. So I have to get to know it, right? And then I think it's important, remember, that this is what's also going to contribute to your voice and to your authenticity, right? And where your passions lay, right? Yeah, because as yoga teachers, we guide with our words. So, you know, it's you have to be very mindful about how 
you, what you're saying and how you're saying it, what your purpose was saying it. Yeah, because each class really has an impact on a person. Mm -hmm. You and I have talked about this many times. We'll create a class and we'll think, oh, well, that was just a basic class. There wasn't anything fantastic about that class. But then we come out of class and our students are like, oh my gosh, Tanya, that was the best class ever. Or Kat, I had no idea I was coming for this and I feel so amazing now. I came in feeling crappy and, you know, whatever it is in those 60 minutes that you did with your lovely melodic yogic voice managed mm-hmm. to change them. Yep. It's a Absolutely. powerful tool. Mm-hmm. And have you been to classes before where there's no no language spoken, just a quiet class? That's powerful. But then have you also been to classes that the teacher never quits talking? So you have to find that balance. And I'm I struggle more with the never quit talking part. <laughs> so it you do need to be very careful and mindful as a teacher because our words can help us heal. They can help us, you know, shine light on the yoga practice itself, but also to shine light on the history, the philosophy, where where the roots of the practice comes from, and even shine light onto what that person's dealing with today. Sometimes you can say something just a little differently, and it will connect with someone, and it will change the way they see their practice, and it really elevates their practice. Yeah, this is the fantastic sort of changeover that you see with 200-hour instructors and 500-hour instructors, where they move from the anatomy, the Q and, you know, a theme to sort of the energetics and that powerful philosophy that they can start to describe and really put home for the students. And it's also the ability like you and I were talking about just recently is just meeting the person where they are on their mat. And like you say, maybe the person isn't going to be receptive to Sanskrit. So then figure out the language that they will be receptive to. Mm-hmm. And granted, if you're teaching a class of 20, you can't teach to that one person. You have to teach to the masses and not not feel like, I mean, yes, you're responsible for everybody in the classroom, but you also can't make it just for one person. Person. Like you have to try and appease the masses. Yeah. And you want to be, when you're as an instructor in particular, you want to choose the language that is essential. And there's a whole section in the Inspired Yoga Teacher book by Gabrielle Harris where she talks about the language of teaching. A lot of times less is more, as we know. So we want to be very mindful about what do the students need to know? Because if we're just blathering on, you're going to get, they don't even know what to grasp onto. or what they're supposed to be doing. So being aware of what you're saying and how you're saying and what your purpose for saying it is and just choose that that is essential. Mm -hmm. In our 500-hour teacher training, you and I have talked about this. We call this direct language. And it's kind of really tricky, especially if a teacher has been teaching, you know, in 200-hour for a long time, not using direct language to change the habit of their ways to a more direct language. But like what Gabrielle is talking about in that essential language is literally just speaking to parts in the body. We're not referring to his or hers. Gender is removed. We're not referring to mine or yours. Duality is removed. We're purely referring to the foot. Move the foot forward. Mm -hmm. Put a soft bend in the knee. Engage the belly button. It's not draw your tummy in, right? That's not essential language. That might be comforting for somebody, but it might be uncomfortable for another somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, one of the very first yoga trainings I ever did was with Beth 
Wes Shaw uh, from Yoga Fit. Yoga Fit's very big into using ing words, I-N-G. It is funny. I, I haven't done it in a while. I probably should do it maybe one day this week. But when I use a class and I add ing words, like we are moving, you're feeling this here. We're aligning our feet. You know, when we when I use ing words, people, it's it's been really weird that people will come up and go, oh my gosh, that was the best class. And when I say we are doing something like I'm including them in the class, that's a, this another thing that people just respond so well to. I know you've been to classes before that people are like, do this, do that, very authoritative and, dicta- and dictatorial, I guess. People don't seem to respond as well to that. Now, in martial arts, yes, they do. You know, in an Ashtanga practice, maybe, maybe they do. But in some practices where you are choosing those softer words and being and including people in the words I find is helpful. And, you know, you don't have to be profound. You don't have everything that comes out of your mouth doesn't have to be this great pearl of wisdom that someone's going to take home and go, oh my gosh, when I was in Tanya's class, she said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And it just, you know, but sometimes you can say things like that and it does make a big difference, but everything that you say doesn't have to be life-changing and profound. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up because in the 500 hour that we teach, we always talk about removing the you and the me and the we and the us because it creates duality. It it implies that there is a you and a me or a teacher and a student instead of implying equality. You know, again, one of those things to also consider is being super mindful about always using positive terms as opposed to using negative terms. And like you hear teachers say, don't lock out the knee. Okay. Mm -hmm. Again, there you go with a command. Instead, can you find a softer way to say it? Maybe you say, try and find a micro bend in the knee, which is a positive way of saying, don't lock out the knee. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and turning it for something that is, you know, a suggestion versus a command and really trying to think about avoiding trauma inducing words. Like we forget how much trauma is in our rooms, uh, in our classes. The majority of our students have suffered an injury. Many of our students have suffered loss. They've suffered, you know, broken body parts. They're healing, whether they're healing physically, mentally, or spiritually. They're coming to us because they're generally on a healing journey. And we need to be mindful to then not to use triggering words. And it's funny because you don't think about how often you use triggering words, but things like push, pull, and drop. You push people when you're pushing them around. You pull people. You pull people's hair. You 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 pull their shirt. You drag them around. Like these are words that are trauma-inducing. The same with dropping. You drop things, they tend to break, right? We don't want to drop our body parts to the floor. We want to lower them to the floor. And you hear it all the time. Drop your right knee to the mat. Mm, lower your right knee to the mat. You drop your right knee to the mat, you might break it. Lowering implies some engagement. And so using better words, we don't push, maybe we press, right? We don't push the knee forward, we press the knee forward. We don't pull the belly in, we draw the belly in, or we Mm -hmm. engage the belly in, right? Mm -hmm. It's just so funny, though, because now that we talk about it, you're going to go into class tomorrow, and you're going to do it, and you're going to be like, ah, Ah, I do it. I do it all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, and then another thing is a lot of times if you're a T 
teacher, if you notice people are messing things up, a lot of times it's because we're using the exact same cue in the exact same way. And so they're not even hearing you anymore. So it's good to mix things up, avoid repeating the same words. So it just sounds like the teacher and Charlie Brown, you know, you, so you want to, you want to make people go, wait, what did she say? So people are still paying attention. That's why I love sometimes doing um, vinyasa backwards or, you know, entering the vinyasa from the front of the mat versus the back of the mat or back of the mat versus the front of the mat or turning your students around on their mat really throws them off because the one person who's checked out is facing the wrong way and they're looking around the room going, wait, what happened? When did this happen? (laughs) But if it's your mom, then she's usually pissed off that you turned everyone around and she's the wrong way. I'm just kind of saying I might have had that experience before. (laughs) Well, I do have a question. See what you think about this. One thing Gabrielle Harris mentions is that when you use the word your, it connects students to their body. So like step your right foot forwards compared to step the uh, right foot forward. You and I both have, I mean, like I generally don't say your, I generally say let's move our right foot forward. I don't usually, to me, it feels too much like a command, but then I know, but then I would probably be more apt to say move the left foot forward. And in, we try to strive for the direct language of using the, and the reason for that, and far be it from me to disagree with anybody in print, but I disagree with her in that because yoga philosophy tells us to detach. And so where she says, get in touch with your body, yoga philosophy actually tells us to detach from our body, to go inside, but not because we're like, oh, that's my shoulder. Instead, we're to be going inside to the spirit view, right? We're supposed to be going inside to the Atman, the Purusha, not going inside to feel where our hip is in space, Mm -hmm. right? And so in our teacher training program, we really speak to using the, using the language of that, this, the, and not you, yours, mine, or ours, Mm -hmm. right? To really try and separate from attachment because we really don't want to be attached to our bodies. Our body is just a thing. It's a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Right. And when we get super attached to our body, that's when we start having body image issues. That's when we start comparing, well, my shoulder doesn't look like her shoulder, Mm -hmm. you know. And so then all of a sudden there becomes this attachment to our body. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that I guess it's just something I differ with her. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing that she does talk about is using metaphors or phrases that evoke imagery. And I think most yoga teachers will use things like this, like ground your feet, let let your feet become the roots of a tree and drive into the earth, creating a good foundation. So I think that if it's authentic to you to use that kind of language, that's, that's fabulous. And I do sometimes, not all the time, because sometimes it feels like I'm trying to be someone that that's that I'm not. So I don't use a lot of things like that. Like I don't say pour your breath into the container of your body. I don't say things like that. But I I do respond to them. If I'm in a class and a teacher does use that. Yeah. I use some imagery, but I tend to use my imagery more in the beginning and the end when I'm in those meditative spaces. Mm -hmm. When I'm in the postural spaces, I tend more towards the anatomical, physiological responses, like why we're doing it, the purpose of what we're doing and what it's doing to change our body, as opposed to the imagery of it during the postures. I tend for the more technology the 
more technical terms. Something (laughs) else I wanted to bring up is really finding your tone and your volume, like, right? Like it's important for you to consider, is this class a flow class? Do you want your voice to be more elevated, more bouncy, more encouraging? Is this class a slower, more restorative? Do you need to speak quietly and get that person in a meditative space? Like, what is it you're trying to drive or elicit as a response out of your students, right? And sort of trying to pair both the tone and volume of your voice. But also remember that if you're in a big room, you can't tone your volume down so much that the back row can't hear you because that's also futile. So you have to also remember that you have to be mindful of projecting and being mindful that you're projecting to all your students, not just the three students that came just to say hello to you today. You know, one thing that I wanted to literally read from her book on this is consider the language of permission. The language of permission gives the students agency to make their own choices when practicing and in doing so they become their own teachers. It's more inclusive to invite students into action as it allows them to move within the perimeters of their body on that day. It sets a tone in the class that they're safe to experiment with postures and adapt them to suit suit their needs much more so than direct cues. So her examples are like, you may say, take child's pose, but a language of permission would be, feel free to take child's pose if that is calling you. Or a direct language might be, if crescent is too hard for you, drop your left knee to the floor, there's that drop. Um, (laughs) And the language of permission, it would be, how does it feel to place one knee on the floor? Uh You know, and so I love that. And I had not thought about it as giving, I mean, I give people permission as far as showing levels all the time. Um, I mean, actually at nauseam I do, but, you know, having saying it that way, I thought was lovely. And a direct language might be, if you can't do pigeon, lay on your back and do modified pigeon or whatever it is. But a language of permission would be, let's explore the alternatives for pigeon. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make someone feel like a loser, you know, like, oh, okay, well, I'll be back here in the cheap seat since I can't do it. Yeah. No, but I do like the idea of her view of language of permission. You and I both do that already, Yeah. but it's just nice to see it in writing. Yeah. And I love to even just say, give yourself permission, give yourself Mm -hmm. permission to do what feels right for you today or feels right for you in this pose. But then in addition to that, it's not even just about permission for that posture, but it's also what feels accessible, right? And Mm -hmm. I say that all the time, try what feels accessible. If this doesn't feel accessible, try what does, you know, Mm -hmm. giving yourself permission to take whatever level that might be for the Mm -hmm. day. And the last thing I wanted to mention is moving our language from a fear-based to a feeling-based. And instead of saying, don't crunch into your low back, you might say, lengthen out of your low back to create some more space. So instead of trying to scare the students, like, don't drop your knee this way or you'll rip all the muscles off the bone. Now, I do say that if I'm trying to be funny sometimes. (laughs) But but if you're in a serious class, you don't want to try to be funny. But, uh, you know, it might tell people, you know, let's externally rotate that quad so that you have a better feeling in the knee, you know, so trying to not lead the class through fear. Well, fear of hurt the hurting themselves or the fear of disappointing you, the teacher. Oh, for sure. I love that. Yeah. There's so much to the language of yoga. There's so much to finding your voice. And I know that every new student comes into yoga teacher training and they're like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to teach like you. Well, you're not supposed to teach like me. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to teach like you. Mm -hmm. 
right? And you'll find that voice. It will come. It always does. Absolutely. I love it. I do too. So the only book I have on the language of yoga, and there's a bunch. Well, I guess I have two right here. Beth Shaw's Yoga Fit, who is my first language of yoga teacher. And then Journey into Power by Baron Baptiste. He does give you lots of ways to impart language. And of course, I already mentioned the Inspired Yoga Teacher by Gabrielle Harris. I love it. Perfect. I'm Kat Kahn. And I'm Tanya Rice. And this is Two Pittas on a Pod signing off. Thank you for listening to Two Pittas on a Pod. We're grateful you joined us. Join us again for more musings of a couple of yogis. We hope you learned, laughed, and enjoyed this podcast. And we hope you will share your comments or questions. Email us at twopittasonapod at gmail.com. And like us on Facebook and Instagram at Two Pittas on a Pod.